What if someone told you that you could learn the secret to happiness or success? Maybe you have an interest in mental health or the unknown, or even the desire to communicate with the dead. These are the real stories and encounters from the real people on Behind the Story with Chuck Talk. And here's your host, Chuck Talk. Hey, 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 listeners. I hope you're having a fantastic day. So, have you ever wondered, is God really trying to get your attention? Can you actually manage to listen, test, and know when God speaks? Well, my guest, the Reverend Dr. David Chaka, says yes. And if that's true, then what's it like to hear that voice? What are the indicators that we are on track rather than in left field so my guest is gonna fill us in on all the details now he's got some great stories and stories of miracles and these miracles have happened in his presence so sit back listen and enjoy oh by the way thank you again for listening and always supporting this channel so without you we wouldn't be here thank you now on with the show Mr. David Chotka. Well said. You've actually pronounced it correctly. And I will give you kudos and points for that. <laughs> Should I address you as anything else? Oh, you can call me David. If you're introducing me to the president of the United States of America, you can call me the Reverend Doctor. But just call me David. That'll do. Okay. I just want to make sure if I was going to do Reverend, Reverend Doctor. But whatever you want. David. <laughs> I'll do too. <laughs> So actually, in my childhood, my, my middle name, my name was R, R, so I'm actually a doctor since I was a kid. I'm DR. So now I'm Dr. Doctor. But there's really bad jokes is what that is. You know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, there is a song called Dr. Doctor, which I really yeah, enjoy. <laughs> yeah. This is the new one. This just came out. I have two other books as well, but this is the one that just came out. And actually, this made number one on Amazon, and it made editors pick picks for best read for March. And it was only published in March, so I was very pleased with that. It was a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a coup there. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Yes, I, I and I see you. You are, you are an author of several books. Yeah, I've written five, and you'd only want to read four of those. One of them is too is too wordy and too scholarly. I wrote a book called Powered Praying in two thousand and nine, and that's on the key words of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, putting each of Jesus' words inside the framework of Jesus' teaching. And believe it or not, that book was the first one to do that. And you got to know, there's got to be, oh, there's got to be thousands of books on the Lord's Prayer. It's been around for 2,000 years. <laughs> and you would think that somebody would, would get the idea that what they should do is locate the prayer inside the teaching. And as far as I'm aware, and I've read about 150 books on that, I'm probably, the, I'm, if I'm not the first, I'm one of the first to do that. And it's a, it's a revolutionary way of looking at that prayer. So that, that started the writing trajectory. And last year I wrote a book on healing prayer and I co-wrote this with an upper room author, a guy by the name of Maxie Dunham. He's a Methodist from Tennessee and he and I are great friends. And this book chronicles healing stories that are medically verified. Now, one of them is my wife's. She was miraculously healed from muscular dystrophy. I was going to ask, so this is what you could really call a miracle. That one was that one. Yes. Okay. So let, let me be as clear as I can. I'm a pastor and lots of times I go in the hospital and I sit with people who are dying and they pray for a miracle and it does not come. In this case, it was, and it was a re remarkable kind of a thing. Do you want to hear the story behind it? Yes, please. Yes. Well, here's what happened. So my congregation was in Northeast Alberta above Montana. And a little town, little town called Spruce Grove, Alberta, just outside of Edmonton, which is a city of about a million five or something like that. At any rate, that congregation was growing rapidly and we had a missions program. And I wound up being invited by two American congregations, one in Nyack, New York, and the other down in Atlanta, to partner with them to help Uganda rebuild after that terrific devastation that was caused by Joseph Kony and by Idi Amin. Now, I don't want to get into great detail about the story because it's gory and it's awful, but we were brought to a place where we could come alongside and we, I took teams with me 
and we would, you know, do, we do build projects. We built a, we built a couple of buildings. We put a latrine in for one community and I would teach pastors because they had had 20 years in a war zone. And so if somebody could read, they became the pastor or the teacher, you know, and so we, I went in to try and help them any way I could. And uh, actually this book got written as a result of going there because I wanted to put a training manual into their hands. But here's what happened. There was an organizing bishop and that bishop <laughs> acted like an African tribal and invited himself into my pulpit. <laughs> so we flew, but I wanted the church to hear him anyway. And we flew him into my church. And uh, he, of course, he had this amazing story about the relationship between the church and the army and the parliament and all the prayer that happened and stories about people being saved when they should have got killed and all those kinds of things. Everybody was on the edge of their seats as they're listening to this guy preach about this terrible event that happened and the miraculous interventions that took place in that time. And while he was teaching, my wife was sitting beside me and the church was packed to the rafters. And it was, we, we had three services on a, on a weekend. We had one on Saturday, one at nine o'clock on Sunday morning, and then another one at 11. It was 11 o'clock service. But here's what happened. The guy was so electrifying. The Saturday nighters called their friends. And they said, you got to come tomorrow morning and hear this. <laughs> so the, the Saturday night crowd repeated at the nine o'clock service and the nine o'clockers got so excited about what this guy was saying. They all attended the 11 and it was jammed to the rafters. The congregation's building sat about 400 and there must've been 650 people in there rammed shoulder to shoulder tight and that kind of thing. And he was telling this amazing story uh, about what happened when Joseph Kony's army was attacking the Ugandan army and all these people praying for the release of their country and so on and so forth. Everybody's on the edge of their seats. And I'm sitting next to my wife, right up at the front on the steps leading up to the pulpit. I mean, this is how full it was. And the guy looks down at me and he has this thick Ugandan accent. And he said, David, David, what is M.A.? And I said, M.A. Master of Arts. I don't know. <laughs> and he said, no, no, something's wrong. I've got something wrong. I've got a letter wrong, something. And he stopped. Of course, the whole church is waiting for him to finish his story. He stopped mid-sentence. He puts his head on the pulpit. And then he looks down at me. And then he looks up at the congregation. And he says this. It's a wasting muscle disease. Whoever has it has weakness, first of all, in your head, and it goes down into your shoulders and it goes down into your back and into your spine. And when you damage a muscle, you lose it. You, your shoulder blades go out of position. You start to be in chronic pain by the time you're 16 or 17. And it, he described a perfect medical trajectory for the affliction that my wife had, FSH muscular dystrophy. Now her mother had it, her sister has it, her niece has it. And at that point, she could not raise her arms higher than this. And when she was climbing stairs, she'd have to take hold of her leg, lift it and settle the foot on the, on the stair, grab the rail, pull herself up, move the next leg up. And that's how she could climb the stair. And I kind of knew when I married her that I was going to be pushing a wheelchair at the end of my days, but you know, the girl loved me. So you better bury the girl. <laughs> at any rate, I'm sitting there. And of course she is losing ground with muscles. And she at this, at this point is unable to raise her arms to that level. And I'm looking at her as she says this, whoever has this, Jesus has just healed you. And I watched my arm, my wife's arms go into the air above her head for the first time in two decades. She had not been able to do that. And of course we have friends sitting behind us watching this and they're in awe and I'm in awe. And suddenly I realized that this amazing thing had happened. Now here was the deal. We had company come because there were people from out of town who were considering to travel with us to Uganda on the next trip. And they wanted to meet the leader of this thing. And there were seven miraculous healings in my church that weekend while that man was there. One of them was my very own wife. And I'll just tell you this, we, we went home. And of course the deal was you got to feed your guests, right? Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, the plan was that I would go onto the top shelves and bring down the heavy items because she couldn't do that. And then I would start to cook the stuff with the heavy things and she would come alongside after everything was set up and do the cooking. She climbed on the steps herself, grabbed the things from the top shelf, set them down, started to cook. And we really knew she was healed a week later. And this is a hilarious part of the story. So I have two kids. I have a daughter and a son. And my son is about five, six years older than my daughter. And that girl started to do everything in her power to push every emotional button in my son's brain. <laughs> she was not being nice to him at all. And I was getting more and more upset with a little girl. 
And my, my son was valiantly trying not to be nasty to his sister. He was doing his best. And it was, we were getting pretty close to things getting bad when suddenly my wife lost her cool and said, Jessica shotgun, that's enough. And she stood up and she grabbed my daughter by the hand and raced her up the stairs, made her brush her teeth, got her into the bedroom, made her make the bed, made her pick up the stuff off the thing. Then she got up and she ran down the stairs and got into the van and drove the girl to school. We were so mad at the girl. It took us three hours to realize my wife had run up the stairs <laughs> for the first time in 20 years. Wow. And it, it was the most remarkable amazing thing. And, and actually the story in, in, in the book is I don't believe guaranteed healing happens every time. What I do believe is that from time to time, God initiates and we respond. You can't create a miracle and you can't demand one, but you can cooperate with one when it shows up. And that one happens. Here's, here's the thing that that's powerful about the story. And I'm happy to send you this note. Our doctor knew us from 2005 to 2009, four years, and he knew her condition before. He watched her for three years. Then he wrote the medical note to say that she has been symptom-free for three and a half years and the thing is totally gone. And I'll send you that doctor's note if you want the medical verification. But I am the recipient of a great gift. And yeah, it was an incredible kind of thing to watch. So that is what, that's the story behind the healing prayer book. Now that's, that's the last story in the book. And what I can tell you is lots of churches want to know how to pray for people who are in distress, whether it's medical, emotional, mental, spiritual, whatever it happens to be. Don't really know how to go about this in a way that is caring and helpful. And don't know how to respond to signals when it's clear that God is beginning to do something remarkable in someone you're praying for. And so the book teaches people how not to be idiots. <laughs> You don't, you don't stick your finger in their eye and you know, he'll get up and you don't do that. What you do is you listen to them and you try and pay attention to whatever prompting is coming into your soul. And I give step-by-step -step approaches in that material. And the other author of the book, a guy named Maxie Dunham, is one, he's one of the, how do I say this? An elder statesman of Methodism. He was the upper room editor for 25 years and he was the pastor of the largest church in American Methodism, Christ Church Memphis. And he was trying to prepare a resource for his prayer teams. While I was preparing a resource for mine, we overlapped. We saw that I had different things to say than he did, but the theology was the same. So we put the two books together and it created a small little book that we, we developed last year. But the goal behind that book is to help people learn how to be pastoral and gentle with people who are afflicted or in trouble and how to respond when the signals come. Yeah, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you that. I tripped into this. I, 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 you know, here's the first time this ever happens is the first story in the book. And this is what happened. I was a student at seminary and there were in the seminary, there were people who believed in the miracles and those who didn't. Okay. And we had this kind of divide in the class. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would go into the class and I was the, I was the loud mouth who believed in them. <laughs> there were quiet ones in there, but the, I was the one who spoke up. And whenever somebody said, oh, that didn't really happen, I'd say, wait a minute, there's, the historicity of this narrative is quite complete. And there was a guy in the class who was a magnificent jokester. He could fire a salvo into the room and the room would explode with laughter. It didn't matter what the topic was. It didn't matter if it was offbeat or right on track. He would just be able to make a joke about anything and the whole room would burst into gales of laughter anytime the guy spoke when he wanted to make that happen. So I don't, he'd be, the, he'd be that the court jester on steroids, if I could say this anyway, he had this magnificent humor voice and he always managed to make everybody laugh and we laughed so hard. We cried. It was just that funny. And we laughed until it hurt. And when I was the object of it, it did hurt. And so I would defend something from the gospel and this guy would fire his salvo. The room would explode with laughter and I would be the object of the humor that lasted a couple of months. And then finally I thought to myself. I don't think I'm going to be friends with that guy. <laughs> so here's what happened. We had mutual, he had a lovely wife and she was a sweet, kind lady. And we had a mutual friend who was a sweet, kind lady. And whenever those two sweet, kind ladies were around, none of that nasty stuff happened. When he was by himself, I couldn't talk to him. But when those, <laughs> when those friends were there, it was fine. Anyway, so one day I am walking to a class across the plaza and that this, this girl, I, I called her Susie in the book. That's not her name because I've lost track with her, but I called her Susie. And so here's what happened. She, she said, oh, by the way, our friend's in the hospital. 
And Chuck, I have to tell you, I didn't feel bad at first. And then I realized that was a bad thing. <laughs> then I said, oh, what's wrong? And she said, he has phlebitis. And I don't know if you know what that is. If it's in your leg, it's called deep vein thrombosis. It's where a clot forms in your leg and you could be in trouble. If it's in your arm, it's called phlebitis. And if it breaks free, 95 people out of 100 die when it goes into your lung or your brain. And if you don't die, you're terrifically impaired and it's not good for the rest of your days. And this guy was in his 20s. And he said to the, so this girl tells me he's got phlebitis. And I thought, oh man, that's bad news. And then she said this crazy thing to me. She said, he wants you to come and pray for him. I said, I'm not going. <laughs> she said, why not? I said, because every time I say the healing stories are true, or Jesus did walk on water, or he did rise from the dead. I'm the object of the humor gun and people laugh and he has mocked me in front of our peers. And she said, yes, he has. He's been cruel. I said, yes, he has. She said, I'll talk to him, but he did ask me. I said, listen, I'm glad he asked you, but I, I think he wants to look for an excuse to make fun of me again. And so away she went and uh, she saw him and I, the next day in the coffee lounge in the school, I saw her and she said, oh, by the way, our friend says he's terribly sorry. He feels very badly about treating you so poorly but he wants you to come and pray. And I, this is not in the book, but there, there's more to the story. But I said no a second time. And she said, well, I, she said, David, you need to go. And now there's two reasons I said no. One was the mockery. The other was the only people I'd ever seen do that kind of stuff were the crazies on television who'd slap people on the forehead and throw Yankees in the air. And people would fall down and they'd vibrate and he'd yell or something. And I didn't think that was a helpful model. <laughs> so, and I'd never met anybody who had been healed after somebody prayed. I did not have any instruction or training. So I was a total novice on this. I had no, I was greener than your average rookie. And, th and so I was number one, kind of bothered by the way this guy talked about me. And number two, I didn't know what I was doing. Anyway, so the third time I'm walking across the same plaza, she sees me again and she's, oh, by the way, did you go and see our friend? And I said, no, I'm not going. Now you gotta know about this girl. She was sweet, she was kind. She was one of those do unto others as you would have them do unto you kind of Christians. And if there was anything ever wrong, this girl would show up and she'd bring a meal and she'd love on you and she'd care for you and she'd make sure you had whatever money you needed and all that kind of thing. And this sweet, kind, gentle girl looked at with fire coming out of her eyes and she stomped her feet and she said, David R. Jotka, haven't you been going around this school telling everybody the Bible is to be obeyed as soon as you know it? I said, well, yes. She said, well, what about this scripture? I was sick and you visited me. And suddenly I went, oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to have to go and see the guy. <laughs> so I had this terrible secret feeling that I couldn't escape the scripture. And so I looked at her and I said, I guess I'm going to have to obey the Bible. She said, well, you better go. <laughs> oh, but an hour later, I was in the hospital room. And I walked in and of course he was wired for sound. There were all these monitors and all these wires and he looked pale as a ghost and he was obviously terrified. And I walked in and I said hello to him. And then I, then I had this crazy thing in my head, Chuck. I, I said, well, you know what the Bible said, can you visited me? It doesn't say I was sick and you prayed for me. Talk to him and leave, right? Anyway, I have this little chat with him about the books and about his, how he's feeling and, you know, and how's his wife doing and all that kind of thing. And then I said, okay, I visited you. Now I'm going to go. And he said, wait, aren't you going to, aren't you going to pray? And I said, look, I've got to know something. Every single time I have ever said anything about the Lord healing or the Bible being true or the resurrection happening or a miracle taking place, you have consistently and regularly mocked me in front of our peers. Why do you want me to pray for you? And he started to cry like a baby. And he said, I am so sorry I did that to you. You're the only one I know who actually believes that every word in the book is true. And I have phlebitis and I could die. Won't you please pray for me? Oh, what are you going to do? I mean, suddenly I realized the guy was serious. He, he wasn't going to make fun of me this time. But I was still <laughs> a greener than your average rookie. <laughs> I still didn't know what to do. And so I, I remember, okay, in the Bible, uh, Jesus put his hands on people. I go, yeah, okay, okay, maybe. So I said, okay, where is the phlebitis? He said, left arm above my elbow. I said, may I put my hand there? He said, yes. 
and I put my other hand on top of his forehead and I, I, Chuck, I don't know what I prayed. I prayed some kind of an honest prayer. I said something like, oh God, this man's in trouble. Would you please grant him a recovery? Would you please grant him a healing? I don't know what I said. I just know I was scared. While I was praying, the only way I can describe what happened next, my whole interior being welled up with compassion for him. And I felt love for this man and fire in my soul. And it filled my whole being. And it was like the room was on fire with light. And I felt this fire go down my arm and went into his arm. And then he, he said this, he said, what is that fiery heat going into my arm? I said, uh, that's the Holy Spirit touching body. He's granting you a physical healing. And then Chuck, I ran out of the room because <laughs> I was afraid he was going to make fun of me. And I did, I was, first of all, I had never, ever, ever experienced anything like that. That was the very first time that ever happened to me. And I, I was terrified by the experience of that interior presence, that fire. And then I didn't know what had happened to him. And I, I was afraid he was going to make fun of me. And all that sort of combined together and I ran out of the room. Well, a nurse was walking in as I was running out. And I found out much later that um, he had looked at that lady in uh, Oakland. I can go home now. My, 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 my friend from the Bible college came and he prayed for me and Jesus has made me well, you know, and, and she said, well, we don't do things like that around here. You have to have tests. And oh, by the way, I've come for your test because you're due. And he went into the tests and every trace of phlebitis was gone from his body. Every trace of it. At four o'clock in the afternoon, the next day in the very coffee lounge where that girl had confronted me, he was there the next day. And How? so I looked at him and I said, you're here. And he said, I, uh, what happened? You know, it was a 19th century building with stone columns in the hallway. You know, that kind of building where they'd have this old architecture in the terrazzo floor. He pulled me into one of those corners <laughs> and he looked in every direction. And then he said, that prayer changed my life. Uh, what I was, that prayer changed my life. Because I'd never tasted or seen that. I'd never, ever had an experience like that. I'd met people who had, when they were helped with prayer, comforted by prayer when they were in medical procedures. And I'd met people where the case could be made that the prayer helped them with their healing. But I'd never met somebody who was that dramatically healed before. Mm. And from that point forward, it started to happen in, in my ministry. In fact, it just happened a couple of months ago. I was in a little church in northern Saskatchewan. I do an event there. And I'm in a denomination called the Christian Missionary Alliance. And in the Alliance, there's four things that we stand on all across the planet, that Jesus is the savior, the sanctifier, the healer, and the coming king. And so it's a denomination that believes in this, sort of. <laughs> because, you know, they're the same boat as me. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> we couldn't believe it up here, but don't know down here. At any rate, I was in this church and I'm doing this event. And there were two, I'll tell you the one that was just medically verified. So there was one event where I was praying with a lady who was in a, when it, it was in an electronic scooter and she couldn't walk and she couldn't stand up. And we prayed with her and she walked for the first time in seven years and the pain vanished from her body and she was able to rest. But I haven't got the medical verification on that one. The second one just, I just got this like two weeks ago. So there was this woman who was filled with arthritis, could hardly walk. And, um, so she got invited because she heard about the first one. And, uh, and so she came to the front and said, how, how can I help you? And she said, well, I'm, I'm full of pain. I can hardly stand up. I can hardly walk. And she's only in her forties. And as I started to pray, her whole being filled up with that same experience of compassion and fire from the top of her head to the tips of her toes. And suddenly she became limber and quite well. And she started to move her body in ways that she hadn't been able to move for a long time. And that's a small town in rural Saskatchewan. Everybody knows everybody else's backyard, <laughs> let alone in their business too, right? And so as it turned out, that was a friend of the youth pastor's wife. And I just found out from the youth pastor's wife that she got a doctor's note saying all traces of arthritis from her body have vanished. That just happened two months ago. Is that the power of prayer and power of belief or is that a divine intervention through an individual? My answer is yes. Yes to it. <laughs> I'm going to add this. There's no pun intended on the word. Yeah. You are unorthodox, 
but what if you're back or he should have said but you are so effective and captivating. So I can see where your prayers have power. Well, the Lord, the Lord's the one who bestows that. I didn't know I had the ability to do this. I just didn't know. And I prayed for years for my wife and she wasn't healed. And the Ugandan bishop spoke and then she was. I mean, so, so the, the phrase I use to describe this is God initiates and we respond. And uh, you can't, you can't bluff something like that. You can only cooperate with it. Yeah. And let me tell you another one that happened. So th this, this one happened in Chatham, Ontario. How much time we got? Have we got a little time for this? Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's have another story. But okay. First, this one's not in the book, and it's, it, it was a fun one. Okay. Uh, so here's what happened. I was a teacher in, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a doctor. And so I was teaching our training, in our training institute, it was called the Pathways School for Ministry. And I was telling this story inside that classroom and remind me, to, to tell you what happened at the end of my telling the story. So here's what happened. I was in Chatham, Ontario, which is about 45 minutes drive from where I currently serve. Just about an hour past the border. Anyway, I'm in that little town and, um, and there, I'm serving the fair side and uh, there's a family there called me. And usually when a pastor gets a call, it's either extreme joy or it's terrible despair. It's one or the other. And this one was delightful. It was a couple married just about 50 years. And they called me up and they said, Pastor David, I'm, we're we're going to have our 50th wedding anniversary. This is in September. We're going to have it in April. Would you do a renewal of our 50th uh, wedding anniversary vows? I said, oh, the wild horses couldn't keep me from that. And so we looked at the date. We locked the time. And then I said, well, do you want me to come over? And they said, well, we've got lots of time. Come over when you have some time. We'll invite you in a month or so. And a month later, I got the call and I went over to their home. Now, the guy was retired military. And so he was actually very physically fit. He looked and he had a big barrel chested kind of a guy, even though he's in his seventies and he had this full head of hair. I'm almost jealous. Here's what I do when I, I went like this all the time. Cause I always, <laughs> yes. at any rate, this man sat down at the head of the table and it was obvious that he was the head of the home. You know what I'm saying? And the table itself was laid out with a, they were, this is a formal visit with the pastor. The silver tea service was out. And all of the nice cakes and pastries were out and the lady sat across and she stuck her little finger out as she poured out tea, that kind of thing, you know, so I had to be in my best behavior. At any rate, um, we, we start to sip and I have my notebook out to make notes about the service they want. So I'm, I open it up and I said, well, let's start talking about the anniversary. And they said, well, wait a minute, Pastor David, can we move the anniversary up? Can we do it between Christmas and New Year's? So I found a date and I had two days clear then. And I said, yes, I could do it on this day or this day. We circled one. I looked at them. I said, are you trying to save money for your family? Are you asked, are you trying to, so they don't have to travel twice. They could come just to Christmas time and celebrate. The man said, no, I have level four bone cancer. I'll be dead in April, but I'll make it to Christmas. And I wanted to celebrate 50 years with my wife. And you got to know, I mean, you go into a nice thing like that, expecting one thing and you get the other. And of course she started to cry. And he was military, so he was kind of stiff and reserved. And I just didn't know what to make of this. And then he starts telling me what he wants in his funeral service and what he wants in the anniversary. And he's wanting me to take notes while he's telling me he's dying. <laughs> so it was not, it, I was, I'm sitting there, oh, okay. So I'm starting to write these notes and I'm not doing a good job of it because this is a fine man. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. This is somebody I respected, somebody I cared for. This is an anchor member of my church. I had done military um, uh, services for with this with this uh, family. He was a World War II uh, airplane uh, vet with, who airplanes and so on. Just a wonderful guy. And I was processing the news and hardly able to write. And as I'm writing, that fire comes into me again. And I have a picture pop into my head of me reaching around and putting my hand on the far side of his ear and praying that God would heal. So I looked at him. And I said, may I pray for you? And he sat up in his, in his uh, military kind of a way. He grabbed, he said, I'm married 50 years. My two kids are raised. The business is sold. My wife is taken care of. My grandkids are taken care of. Everything's in place. And he changed the subject. Now, if you've not been in the ministry, that means pastor, do not touch with barge pole and don't ask again. <laughs> so so I, then he starts giving more information about what he wants in these two services. And I'm trying to write. And that picture comes into my head again. And so I asked him a second time and he looked angry at me 
And then he, he repeated what he'd said before, you know, my, my two kids are raised, my family, you know, I'm 50 years married, I've sold the business. And it was like, he was saying, did you miss basic training pastor? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, 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 I took that, I knew what the signal was. And I went back to writing my notes about what he was doing. And then it happened a third time and a fourth time. And I couldn't shake it. I said, may I please pray for you? And he looked at me that fourth time and he said, why are you asking me these four consecutive times, whether you can pray for me after I had repeatedly told you that I don't want it? I said, I believe the Lord wants you well. And would you allow me to pray for you? And then he got this look on his face like, oh, he's the pastor. I guess I better let the, I better, you know, I better let the guy do his job. <laughs> so um, I reached over and I put on the spot that I saw in my brain. And as I prayed, the room filled with this sense of compassion that's the it's it you know, i don't know how to describe it it's like fire and love joined together and it filled him and he put his head on the table and his wife started crying these beautiful tears and it, i don't know how long it lasted i was it was it 10 minutes was it half an hour you do not look at your watch when you're in the middle of one of those moments and it was beautiful and it was powerful and it was holy all at the same time and then that presence lifted and he tried to sit up and he said, what is that fiery presence going through me? And I said, I do believe that the Lord has touched your physical body. And, um, and so uh, he try and push this, this presence will be on you because God is doing the work inside of you. You might want to lie down on that couch over there. And then I went off on my, uh, around on my errands and did my, did my daily stuff as I always do with my routines and so on. Anyway, um, I gave him two phone numbers. My home was the church. And in those days, we didn't have cell phones. And just after I left, he called my home. I was going to the hospital to do my rounds. He called my home. My wife answered. And he said, why is it every time I read the Bible or pray, that fiery presence comes back inside of me? And my wife said, well, that's the Lord bearing witness to his word. And that's the Lord saying yes to your praying. He's healing you. And this went on for weeks. Anyway, the, the bottom line was when it was done about a month later, um, I, I got, what happened was they had in fact moved the date of that, of that service, because at that point they were still thinking this is a better thing to do economically. Anyway, they moved it. And my secretary, her name was Linda. She had been invited to the one in April and got the change of date for December. She walks into my office on a Thursday morning and she said, I got a call from Mr. Tuffley. He, he said, he needs to see you right away. And she gave me the look, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I said, Linda, should I cancel my day? She said, it's already canceled. I canceled your day. You got to go and see Mr. Tuff. So I get in the car, I drive across town. I come into the room and here's what they've done. They, it's the, it's the same setup. It's the, it's the silver t-shirts with the tarts and the cakes and the pastries. He's sitting at the head the, the, and his wife is sitting across the table. I take my seat and he looks at me and he said, had some news, had a biopsy done, got the results back today. And then he said, answer is gone. And then he went like this. We know who got that. He said, <laughs> now I told, and he was, he was cancer free. He, he was completely level four bowel cancer. It vanished from his body. Now I'm telling the story to a classroom of students two years ago. And as I'm telling the story, there's a young man in the class and he raises his hand. He said, Pastor David, may I speak? I said, sure, go ahead, Tyler. He said, well, my name is Tyler, but you don't know my last name. I said, what's your last name? He said, my name is Tyler Towsley. And I am the grandson of the man that you prayed for. And in those days, I was a shift worker and I was sleeping down the hall when you prayed for my grandfather. And after you left, he told me that Jesus healed him because he felt this fiery heat coursing through his body. And he lived nine years past that moment. He died at 81. And I met him again when he was 80. I, had, I, that was, I, I was serving a new church at that point. And I came back and I was visiting and I stopped at a gas station to fill up. And there he was. It was the cheapest gas in Chatham. I knew where that place was. And he was standing at one point when I was standing at the other. And we greeted each other. And it was an amazing time. So, you know, but I, and I couldn't have, you don't produce those, but you cooperate with them. That's the best way to describe that. And the signal is a rise of compassion inside your heart. 
while you are present to someone who, uh, who is in need of grace. And whether they're a slimy jerk or whether they're a kind, sweet, gentle person like this man was, whether there's somebody who's broken or whether there's somebody who's quite well emotionally, you respond to the divine initiative and cooperate with that when it happens. And uh, I've learned to do that. And uh, there, there were times when I didn't know how to cooperate with it because it was so unusual or so odd. But over all these years, I've learned that when that inside of you, you stop, you ask what's going on, and then you try to pay attention to whatever prompting's coming inside of your heart, and then you cooperate with that. And that's what this little book teaches about. So I, I give processes about how to do that for church teams and so on. That's called Healing Prayer is God's Idea. Well, you know yeah. what? Um, all your stories of prayer belong really well with your latest book. You know, well, that's, it's true. Are you sure? It does. really does. Well, that's because the, the, the thing that's behind it is paying attention to the voice. That's the whole point. And so I wrote that, that the book on healing prayer because uh, people wanted to testify and we had these stories and people didn't know what to do. But in behind it is this whole thing about paying attention to when you get these signals. And the biggest signal, there's, there's really three, three big ones, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so I don't know if you realize that that, that text is in a book called Romans. Romans is probably the most famous Protestant book in the Bible. You know, the Catholics will say it's theirs too, but the Protestant will say, oh, we land on Romans, it's ours, you know. And it's got this doctrine called justification by grace through faith in chapters four, five, and six of that book. But actually, the, the book isn't really about justification. The book is about a church fight. The Jewish Christians were fighting with the Gentile Christians, and they were arguing. Can you imagine a church arguing? <laughs> <laughs> so actually, even the justification argument in chapter four, five, and six, it's Paul saying to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, you get saved the same way. It's not really about the salvation process. It's about, oh, listen, guys, you both got saved the same way. And we learn about it by accident, you know. Anyway, in chapter 14, they were differing on the food they would eat because the Jews had food laws and the Gentiles didn't. About the festival days they would have because there were festival days for one culture and for the other. And they weren't tough. And so the apostle says, a pox on both your houses. <laughs> you know, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, guys. It's not festival days. It is these three things. You get righteousness, you get peace, you get joy in the Holy Spirit. And that belongs to you, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile or whether you're something that I haven't described. And so I took that phrase, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I teased it out and looked at um, how that works. And every Christian gets those. If you don't get peace, there's something wrong. If you don't have joy, there's something wrong. And if you don't have a sweet walk with God, there's something wrong. And when all three of them diminish, something's very wrong. <laughs> and when all three of them grow, something's very right. And actually, my understanding of how God talks is it's mostly nonverbal. You get an increase of peace. You get an increase of joy. You get an increase of a walk with Christ. Or you get distracted from him. You get unsettled. You get unfocused. And if, 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 if those three things get, get, don't work right, that's God talking. That's him saying, pay attention. I'm trying to get your attention. This is not a good idea. What you're currently doing, don't do that. And if it gets jarred, Something's terribly wrong. So I, in the first week of the book, I tell the story. And the first time this happened to me, I was, I was in St. Catharines, Ontario, just north of the, of the border, just north of Niagara Falls. And, um, and my, the town was, it's part of what you guys call the Rust Belt down there. You call, you call that the Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York, and Michigan. And, and Ontario was part of that because the auto pack between our two countries was big, you see. And the town that I was in was a GM town. And so uh, G, we were, this is the 1970s when I was a young man. In fact, I was a teenager. I didn't even know how to do this yet. And, and here's what happened. Gas guzzler cars were starting to be outpaced by Japanese imports. You remember those days? Mm -hmm. Gas prices were going high because of OPEC. And there were not enough people, uh, that, that because the Japanese um, cars were outpaced, Canadian-made cars, uh, they were, there was huge unemployment in our town. So 22.5% unemployment, if you can imagine, 22, one out of four people not working. Now, my parents ran a restaurant and we had five apartments. And so when things were really good, 
the apartments were extra and the restaurant paid the bills. When things were really bad, the apartment eked us a, li a living and the restaurant we ate for free. <laughs> and it was, it was that time when I, I had landed a job with a railway company and the railway company job was marvelous. I was a student at university and it had a return policy. It was twice the minimum wage and it had dental benefits and it had medical benefits and it had a return policy for students and it had, you know, incentives for this and that and the other thing. And I landed that job in January to start in May. But what I didn't think about was the fact that that rail company shipped American and Canadian made cars and nobody was buying. And so CN Rail, that was the company, CN Rail started to lay off their part-time employees. Then they had to cut back the hours of the regular guys. And one week before I was supposed to start, I got a phone call from CN Rail. And they said, Mr. Chotka, there will be no students this year. We got to keep our regular guys working. We just can't bring any, anybody on. It's not going to happen. So that was one week before I was supposed to start. And it meant that I didn't have a job. And if you didn't have a job in those days, you had to shine your shoes, put on a press shirt, and then take your hand type resume down the road and present yourself to somebody in the faint hope they might want to hire you. But it was 22 and a half percent unemployment. Nobody was hiring anybody. And so I had done all kinds of, you know, I dropped off all these resumes and I was doing my best to try and find work. And in my mind, my job was to find a job, right? And so I would help my parents in the restaurant for the little bit of rush that we did have. And when we, then slack time, I'd go and look for a job and then I'd come back and work for the lunch shift or whatever. And this routine went on for several days. Well, there's a regular guy who always came in in the morning for coffee at exactly the same time. And then he'd come in, in the afternoon, buy, uh, he'd buy a, a ham and cheese sandwich and a bowl of my mother's homemade soup because that's what he did. He liked it. That was the routine. His name was Stan. And I had known Stan since I was a little kid because I'd served him his coffee and his soup so many times it was countless beyond number. And he'd watched me grow up. Anyway, he heard from my dad that the CN job had fallen up, apart. Eh? And so he said, well, you know, David, I hear you lost. The, the job didn't happen. I said, you know, Stan, it's terrible. It didn't happen. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, do you want honest work? I run a company. I need a driver for my truck, but I can't give you anything more than minimum wage and there's no benefits, but at least it's honest work. Do you want the job? Well, I got to tell you something. I mean, a job's a job and I didn't have one. And this guy was offering me this thing. And so um, I talked to my dad and I said, dad, I got to borrow your Go to my office. Here's the address. And you knock on the door, the secretary will answer, but you have to commit to me for 90 days. If you do not commit for three months, it's not worth my while because I have to train you. And we won't make any money unless I train you and then you do this on your own. I said, okay, Stan, I'll do that. And so um, he gave me the address. I borrowed my dad's car keys and I left in one of those slack times. And as, as I was driving down the road, my heart started to get heavy. And the only way I can describe what happened next is I got heavier and heavier the closer I got to that factory. Well, I pulled into this factory driveway. And I've never, I'd never experienced anything like this before. So, you know, I'm learning this because I'm learning this because I'm tripping into this stuff. This is how this whole thing happened. Anyway, I'm driving into that driveway. And as I pull out, I just feel awful. I see this red brick building with vines all over it. And it had a loading dock. It had a sliding door with an inset door. And I went up to the sliding door and I knocked on the, the inset and nobody answered. And I yelled, and nobody answered. And I wasn't feeling good about being there anyway. And I tried to walk around the building to see where the entrance was. And I couldn't see any other sign. I knocked on that door again. Nobody answered. So I got back in the car. And as I drove away, my heart got lighter. And I thought, it's got to be nerves. <laughs> so anyway, I'm driving along. And I pull up at my dad's mom's restaurant. And my dad says to me, okay, David, when do you start? I said, well, dad, it's the craziest thing. Nobody answered the door. He was not at all impressed with the intelligent level of his son. Couldn't find the door, you know? <laughs> so he read me out. Then, then we had the lunch rush. And at the end of the lunch rush, of course, in comes Stan for his, for his, you know, his ham and cheese sandwich and the bowl soup. And he says, David, you, you didn't come to the office. I said, dad, did I get the wrong address? You know, so I showed him and he, I said, I, there was this big loading dock and a sliding door with an inset door. I banged on that. Nobody answered. And then he laughed and he said, 90% of the people who show up don't realize that all of our business is by mail or by phone or by a, by a, a, a marketer who sells the product and gives the orders to us back. You got to go around the back of the building. There's a trellis that's covered in the vines and go around that. And there's a door there. And so my dad laughed and Stan laughed and 
then they teased me about being dumb and that kind of thing. And I got back in the car and I started to drive toward that building. And the closer I got to that building, the heavier my heart became. And I walked into that office. There was a secretary there. And she said, Mr. Chotka, Mr. Shepard says you have the job. All you have to do is sign on for 90 days. Here's the pen. And I looked at the contract and she said, is there something wrong, Mr. Chotka? You don't look very good. <laughs> I said, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure it out because it was honest work. It was delivering product to, to local small businesses. It was pantyhose and greeting cards. Now, just be clear. It was store to store, not door to door. I want to make this clear. Anyway, I, I, so I, I forced myself to sign it because I didn't have a job. And she said, well, Mr. Shepard will come by tomorrow morning for his usual coffee and he'll bring the van and you can drive back to the office here and he'll train. I said, well, thank you very much. And I drove away with a heavy, heavy heart like I'd done something terribly wrong. And I was supposed to meet him at, uh, was it 9.50 or 10.10, something like this. He always came in at the end of the coffee rush. And at 8.30 the next morning, I got a phone call from the Department of Highways. They'd accepted my resume and they offered me a full-time job with twice the pay, with dental plan benefits, with everything my heart could desire, with a return package for students. I was guaranteed a job to come back anytime I wanted to, and it was twice the minimum wage, but I'd signed on with a family. Now, yeah, I don't know if that's sin. It was just stupid. And God was saying, I got something better for you. <laughs> but, I, you know, here's what happened. That year, I got called to the ministry and I could not pay all my bills. And I had to work part time while I went to school. And it was a lot harder to do that. I did get through. That first year was really tough. I just barely had enough to eat through and do it. But that was the first time that I realized that God speaks non-verbally by the increase or the withdrawing of his presence. And so I have discovered that Christians everywhere hear the voice, and I don't care if they're a jaded Christian who got burned in the Catholic school or if they're a flaming Pentecostal who sings in tongues for breakfast and casts out demons in the dark. They, they, uh, every kind of Christian that I've ever met, whether they're Eastern Orthodox or uh, Episcopalian or Meth or Presbyterian or Anglican, whatever, they all know they have all had this experience of when they have been doing something very right, the peace increases. And when they're being foolish idiots or about to sin, the peace diminishes or gets jarred. And when I tell those stories, they walk up to me at the door, they look in all directions and they say, you mean that was God? I said, yeah, he was trying to tell you something. And it's a universal thing. It's, it's all over Christendom, but nobody's trained them to pay attention to it. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I think a lot of times people will say something about, oh, my gut feeling. Yes. I have a hunch, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, and I got, I got a gut hunch. I, 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 I felt really badly, so I didn't go. And everybody can tell you when they walked into that room and it was a bad idea, how their spirit went crunch. And everybody can tell you when they walked into that room and it was really good, that they were filled with joy and it was a great thing. And, but they won't, they won't say that God did that. They'll say, oh, it happened, right? And so this book was, was, is really the story of my tripping over all of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the way I describe it in chapter three or four, uh, both my parents were uh, Ukrainian immigrants who, uh, the prairies of Canada and they got free land. And when they were little kids, they used to rocks and roots and that's what they did to clear the field so that they could put the crop in and et cetera. And the land was free on the condition that they would take the rocks and the roots out and plant a crop and stay there. So I just picture this, I'm walking across this field. I am admiring the beauty of the horizon. It's a perfectly tilled field. And I trip on a root that my daddy missed and I bang my head on a rock that my mama missed. And I'm about to say something that my mama and my daddy would not approve and God wouldn't either. But suddenly I look at the rock and see that it's a diamond. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, you, I discovered this. And then as I looked at church history, I discovered that famous leaders through the history of the church have had the same experimental thing where they would trip over hearing the voice and the next thing you know, their heart was strangely warmed or they got a warning and they were told or there was some kind of a visionary experience that happened to them. And, you know, I will say that, that the visionary experiences that everybody talks about, say at Christmas time when the angel appears to the virgin or something like that, things like that do happen. They do happen. And, but they're not the rule, they're the exception. The thing that is ordinary 
is God increases his presence inside of you when you're about to do what is very right. And the presence diminishes when you're getting warning or you're about to do something real dumb. Or the presence vanishes altogether when you're in danger or in trouble. And the point of the book is to teach people to pay attention to those signals. That's the reason I wrote the book. And I can just say this to you. I mean, it's, it happened. Whenever I tell a story like this, you're going to have people call you up and say, oh, that Chotka guy, he talked about that peace thing. Well, that happened to me when? And they'll tell you a story. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. You know, and that, at about this time, I need to address you as Reverend Dr. David Chotka. Yeah, you can do that <laughs> if you want. <laughs> after, after what you have. It's in Catholic history. It's in Methodist history. It's in Presbyterian history. It's, it's in, it's in Brethren Assembly's history. It's, it's all over the history of the Christian church and it's in the Bible. And it's just, it's everywhere. It's just absolutely, well, you know, maybe we should talk about that. <laughs> I'm open up to it. Well, I just want to make sure once again, I'm going to put it right there that yeah. folks know where to go. And the easiest thing in the world is to go to Amazon because that's right. It's still on Amazon. I have not yet put it in stores yet, but it will get in bookstores in the next month or so. It's me, God. <laughs> <laughs> How to listen, test, and know when God speaks. You can just Google that title, or you could look for my name, but you have to look on the corner of my of my Zoom screen to see it's spelled C H O T K A, and that's hard for most people. But the title is "Hey, Are You There? It's Me, God," and you'll be taken right to the site, and you can take a look at the book. It's not expensive; it's a twenty dollars purchase in the U.S. And it's, so, it's, you know, you can't put a dollar value to many people. When I was writing the book, I wanted to make sure that the stories would track with young people, middle-aged people, old people, people who are beginning in the faith, people who question the faith, people who are longtime believers, et cetera, et cetera. So I ran the, I ran the book with a group of teenagers from 17 to 23. I ran the book with a, a mixed group of people who were from, from their teenage years to their 50s. I did it with a retirees group. I did it with a group of Chinese people. I did it with uh, an office for a district for my denomination, and I did it with uh, some Filipinos who were uh, large across ages and stages, and I did it with a multi-ethnic group, and I asked them tell me if the stories in the book grabbed, and if all of them said said yes, the story made it to the book, and so it's been test run by 120 people every story in the book, and what I did with the book is to tell a story about somebody's encounter, and I start with my own, but then I go into church history and I go into contemporary peers. And then I funnel that down into a parallel in the Bible where that happened to somebody in the scripture. And then I ask people to tease out some answers to some questions about their own experience of hearing the voice. And so it's, it's a guide. It's five days a week. And uh, the intention is that you would use that. And by the time you get to week six, I give you a process to try and discern together when you're making a major decision. So I just did this process with, uh, with a couple who were trying to figure out if they should do a large reno or a small one on their home. And it was either 200 grand or 400 grand. And they were swallowing really hard with a 400 grand because that's a big chunk of change. Mm -hmm. And they could manage the two, but they were wondering if it would be better for them to do the big thing and then swallow that, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, you can do, you can use this process. And what I do is I teach people to deliberately and conscientiously listen to the voice seven different ways. And when that's done, you then make your decision. Well, so life is how I'm looking at it, is how it helps you get through life. Yes, the whole point, it's just, there's nothing more important. You want to know you got purpose. You don't want to be an idiot. Well, sometimes we do. <laughs> Every now and then, somebody pushes your buttons and you want to be an idiot, right? But in the long run, we actually look at most of life. You want to be wise in your decisions. You want to know that your, your life has purpose and meaning. You want to know that you're being guided and that it's not just you doing this thing for a good time, but there's purpose behind it. Yeah. And if you look at the gospel tradition, Jesus himself says this. He says, I do nothing unless the father shows me. Now, if God, the son had to have that happen to him, I think you and I should pay attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're in trouble if we don't. Yeah, well, exactly. You can, so, and you will be. Well, sure. So, but, but you have to be taught this. I mean, you don't just go out and run a 100-yard dash because you want to run a 100-yard dash away. You train by walking laps around the block, and then you get a little faster, a little, a little faster. You don't start a marathon by running a marathon. You start a marathon by walking around the block. You have to train people to hear the voice. 
and I did not receive that training and I learned it the hard way. And oh man, I regret some bad decisions that I made. Some of them were, they looked obvious, they looked well, they were good, but they were the wrong decisions. And so my writing this book is to give people a pathway to attempt to understand how that voice comes to them. And this works for Catholics or Baptists or Pentecostals or Presbyterians or Methodists. It doesn't matter what kind of Christian. It matters that you have a relationship with the God who wants to direct you. And one of the teachings I give in the book is God's desire to communicate to us is bigger than our desire to hear. And all that we need to do is to tap into his willingness, not, you know, beat our heads over his reluctance. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the whole point of the book. Uh, I, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed thankful that you added to it and gave the listeners and the viewers more than what's just in the book. Um, because to me now it's going to, I'm going a little bit more. I'm going to open my ears a little bit more and I'm going to listen to my heart more and I'm going to let everything in. And yes. Now the book, there's, there's aspects in that book. There's another book coming out. Oh, I don't deal in that book with how to deal with the powers of darkness and the unclean presence. And there is an unclean presence. All you've got to do is look at the Ukraine. You can't tell me there's no evil power. It's there. And so there is an evil power with a personality. And Western people struggle with this whole notion of a devil, except in occult movies or, you know, when, when Boromir is fighting the court, the orcs, <laughs> Lord Riggs, right? but, um, but there is. And so this book teaches Christians how to listen to God's voice. Another book that has to do with how to pay attention when you're attacked by things that are destructive and evil and how to recognize the unclean voice. Can we get to this book again? will help you do the positive side of that, uh, that, com that conversation. Can we get together again when you have that? I would be delighted if you'd like to do that. I'd love to have another chat with you. I would as well. Uh, like I said, th this, I, I, I don't know if I'm using this has been enlightening. <laughs> well, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Well, you know, straight up, my head is bruised from tripping so many times. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me help you avoid the rock. Okay. <laughs> Can't I say I'm a diamond in rough? <laughs> or, or, well, come what you will, but you don't want to have to hit one of those diamonds so many right. times that you're bloody. You know, just, there, there, there is, it's wonderful if someone can walk beside you mm -hmm. to come along and mentor you. So the third, that's the third or fourth story in the book. Remember where it was. I tell the story of how I met one of my mentors. Uh, have we got time for one more story? Um, yeah, let's. Uh, okay, so here's, um, I was isolated in Northern town. When I was first beginning the ministry, what they do with the new guys, they put them where nobody else wants to go. <laughs> so I was in this northern town, and it was a lonely season. It was uh, it was a time when it was really hard to do what I was doing. I was a solo pastor in a little church in a little town in a cold location that was not too far from you know high art, high art, high, not too far from the art. Anyway, I'm in this town. I'm serving. And uh, I belonged to an organization called the Presbytery. I was in the United Church of Canada, which has a combination of Methodist and Presbyterian. And so the governance structure was we had a gathering of churches called the Presbytery. And I went to this meeting and uh, they wanted us to organize a faith in the family event. And so uh, we sat down, there were seven or eight of us in a room. We, we got the chart paper up and we wrecked on all the stuff we were looking for. And we figured out the budget and the timeline and, and we figured out, then we came up with this list of magnificent presenters, you know, all of our churches were under a hundred and we're in Northern Canada, right? So they're not going to come. <laughs> we dreamed in Technicolor and we put, oh, you, listen, you would have been impressed with those top three. You would have just been impressed anyway. So we, we do this weighted list, we get the list. And then the committee looks at me and said, David, our budget is 50 bucks in a love offering. <laughs> you know, we're little churches and, and the big city's Edmonton, you know, so why don't we, you know, we can start with number. So the first three were these international presenters with a two-year lead time and a huge budget and a five-star hotel and a conference center and, you know, big fat paycheck. And number four and number five were local guys who lived down the street about an hour's drive and they take the gas money and the, and the love offering. That's what they do. So they said to me, David, you're in charge of this committee. Uh, why don't you start at number four 
And if number four says no, go to number five. And if there's no, find somebody who's local. We'll just do the event, right? So we all laugh because we spent the whole day doing this crazy thing. <laughs> so I drive back to my church. It's about a two-hour drive. And I get up the next morning, and I have to act on what I've learned, see? So, so I'm having my morning prayer time, and it was as banal as the day is long. I sang a little hymn. I had a list of people that I was praying for who's in the hospital, and I had friends that I love, and I'm praying for them. And I read a little scripture, and I sang a little song, and I had my prayer time. Came to a place of peace. And then I thought, you know, I really should pray about whether I should invite these names, you know, these, these high-end names. So I picked the first name on the list. And I, uh, I start to pray. And this is the one time where I did have one of those spectacular experiences. So as I was kneeling about this name, um, I, I had a vision that come into my head. I saw a long highway. Now, the date that I were of 1985, and I saw a long highway like in North Dakota, you know, where there's, there's nothing there. <laughs> you can see along that road for miles and miles. And I saw at the end of this long road on Bald Prairie, two calendars overlapping. February, March, 1987. Then the voice spoke and said, invite this man to come to your church, not to the regional event. He will come then. And I was, I, the only way I can describe it, it was, the voice was neither male nor female, but it was commanding. I had no choice except to obey that prompting. So I went over to my bookshelf. I grabbed one of the books that he'd written. He'd written at that point, 21, 22 books. And I got the name of his publisher and our budget was 50 bucks and a love offering. Okay. Now in those days, a phone call across the border cost you 50 bucks. And so I called, <laughs> I called 411. I got, I got the number of his publisher and then I called the publisher. I'm already in territory, like $75, $80. I'm talking to this publisher and I, and the, I said, can I have this man's phone number? And they said, yes. And they gave me the number. And then I called him and now I'm in a hundred dollar territory. And I'm a poor pastor in a small church in Northern. <laughs> but I felt commanded. So, so I called his number and a man with a British voice answers the phone. Very nice, very cultured, very gentle. And I said, is this? And I gave his name and he said, yes, that's me. And I said, oh, can I, I'd like to speak to you about something. He said, well, just a minute. I have one question for you. How did you get my phone number? I said, well, I called your publisher and they gave me the number. And this English voice got me. He said, I told them to give that number. No one, no one. You were the very first to call on that number. It's a private number. I had my number changed just a few days ago. I gave it to them for their purposes and their purposes alone. And I thought, oh, no, there goes my $100. <laughs> anyway, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Here's what I will do. Obviously, a terrific mistake has been made with your publisher. I will tear up the number and I will hang up the phone. And the man said, no, no, no. Dot on the phone now. You're on the phone. It, talk to me. Talk to me. It might be Jesus. It might be Jesus. He said. <laughs> <laughs> and then I made a terrible mistake. I invited him to come to the local conference because I felt honor bound to represent the committee. And he said, uh, no, I have a policy. Once I write on that topic, I speak on it to promote the book. And then I don't speak on it again. People can read the book. And then I realized I had done the wrong thing because the voice told me not to invite him to that. I said, I am so sorry. I was warned not to ask you, but would you come to my church, Northeast Alberta? It's a congregation of 50, 60 souls on a Sunday. It's a three and a half drive over gravel road to get to this place. Would you come? And this guy, the size doesn't. Yes, I must come to your church, but I have three conditions. And I said, okay, here comes the big bill. And he said, number one, I will pay my own airfare. Number two, and bear my own expenses. Number two, there will be no honorarium. And number three, I must mentor you for at least a year or I will not come. I said, what? And so he said, no airfare, I bear the expenses. Number two, you will not pay me. And number three, I must mentor you or I will not come. Well, I did not pray long. <laughs> I said, Sure. And he said, I only have one problem. I said, what's that? He said, I can't come until January, sorry, February or March of 1987. I said, I know. I said, how did you know? So I told him about the vision and the voice. And he said, that's exactly what I am studying and writing on right now. And if you would have me speak on that subject, I will come to your church and I will teach.
And I said, okay, I will do that. His name was Dr. John White. He was the author of 27 books. And he was an international conference speaker. He was a doctor of psychiatry. He was a British person who had landed in Canada, so he knew my country. And he was the founder of the university in Latin America. This is a tremendous speaker. And he came on his own dime, he and his wife together. And he mentored me for a year. So I said to him one day, John, why did you take a cold call from a small church pastor in Northern Alberta who didn't even, you know, who got your phone number by accident? Why did you even do that? He said, David, the day before you called, I, I turned 65. And I realized that I had completed everything in life that I had set out to do. And I asked the Lord what he wanted me to do with my remaining years. And he vision. And in the vision, the Lord said, I want you to find a pastor. Make sure he has no money. <laughs> <laughs> Mentor that pastor to be someone who writes and teaches and travels just like you. And then when you're done with that pastor, find another one. And when you're done with that pastor, find another one. You must mentor one pastor a year for the remainder of your life to create a legacy. And good is his word. He mentored me for a year. I became his great friend. And every time I saw him, something significant happened and I grew. He taught me how to write. So that story's in the first week of the book. Thank you for that one.